Awesome. So I know a few of you in this room uh, can speak multiple languages. I am not very good at that. I took uh, one year of Spanish and one year of French in high school because I just didn't feel like working hard enough to take two years of the same language and really get into the hard things. So I can say, like, I don't know much French in French, and that's pretty much about it. But if you study languages, there's this thing called vocal inflection that is very important in carrying the meaning of the thing that you say. And vocal inflection, it's, it's your pitch, it's your volume. And those things sometimes change from language to language, exactly how pitch moves. Uh, but if you change your inflection, it actually can change the meaning of the sentence that you say. One example that's often used uh, in, in English classrooms is the sentence, I didn't cheat on the test today. And if you change the emphasis in the way you say that, that sentence can take tons of different meanings. You can say, I didn't cheat on the test today, which is implying that it wasn't me, it was somebody else. Someone else is the person who cheated. Or you can say, I didn't cheat on the test today, which is, you know, you're denying that you cheated. Or you can say, I didn't cheat on the test today, which of course is saying, of course I cheat on tests, I just didn't cheat on this one. Right? So your, your inflection, the emphasis that you give in a sentence makes a big difference. And that makes a big difference sometimes for how we read the Bible and how we understand what we see in a passage. Because if we see that, if we put an emphasis on a different word, it can actually change the sentence. One sentence that is really common for Christians to quote and to know is the Great Commission that Jesus gives at the end of Matthew 28. He says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And often, when we read that sentence, or if that sentence is preached on, the emphasis is placed on the word go. We say, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. But I know most of you don't know Greek, and I don't know Greek super well, but if you dive into that sentence, the, the one imperative, the thing you're supposed to do is not go in the sentence, it's actually make disciples. So the emphasis on the statement of, in the Great Commission is go and make disciples of all nations. Right at the heart of the mission that Jesus has given to his people, the church, is the mission of disciple-making. We're called to go and call people into a discipling relationship with Jesus. We're ourselves supposed to, we're supposed to grow as disciples of Jesus, which means that we need to seriously consider what discipleship actually is. We need to seriously consider what the call to be a disciple actually is. And often I think we misunderstand the call to discipleship. And this morning we're going to be looking not at the Great Commission itself, but we're going to be looking at one of the clearer examples in Scripture of Jesus calling somebody to discipleship. We're going to be in Luke 5, verses 21 through 39. And our main idea this morning, I'm going to repeat it again a little bit later in case you take notes. The main idea is that the call to discipleship is a costly call for sinners to find incomparable joy in Jesus. The call to discipleship is a costly call for sinners to find incomparable joy in Jesus. So let's go now to God's holy word as we go to Luke, again, chapter 5, verses 27 through 39. It's page 861 
in your pew Bibles. So please pay attention to the reading of God's word. After this, he, that's Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled. And the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, your word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it cuts deep. It reveals our thoughts. It reveals our intentions and our sin. Father, may we be pierced by your word this morning. But as it pierces us, may it also work like a skilled surgeon's knife, that it heals as it cuts. Father, show us our sin. Call us to you that we may live as disciples of Jesus in this city, and in this world. Amen. So, just a couple weeks ago, uh, Josh preached on the very beginning of Luke chapter 5. We saw some similarities, if you uh, look up at that passage, and we'll talk about some of these similarities in just a bit, but Jesus calls Peter, James, and John to be his disciples. And Peter, James, and John respond by following him, And those three guys are three of the most probably well-known of the disciples, of the apostles. They're in this inner circle with Jesus. But here at the end of Luke chapter 5, we run into Jesus calling another one of the apostles, a man named Levi. And if you grew up in the church and you memorized all of the names of the apostles, you're probably counting back through them, Peter, James, John, the other James, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, and all these people, you're you're counting through and you're like, like, I don't, I don't see a Levi in that list of 12 apostles. And that's actually because Levi here is Matthew. He's, he's the same man as Matthew. If you look at this account in other Gospels, it calls him Matthew. Uh, he just had a, another name. So as we're looking at this passage, keep in mind, this is one of the 12 apostles. This is Levi slash Matthew. And we get a glimpse right at the very beginning about Levi's life before he became an apostle. Jesus goes out of the house he was in in the previous passage and he sees Levi, this tax collector, sitting at a tax booth. And it's really significant that Levi is called a tax collector here because tax collectors were despised in Jewish society in Jesus' day. 
And they were despised because they were considered to be traitors and cheats. They were considered to be traitors because they were viewed as being allies of the Roman Empire. Because as the Roman Empire grew and expanded, as they subsumed smaller kingdoms under them, they would tax those people heavily. And the tax collectors would be people from that conquered people group who would be charged with collecting the taxes for the empire from their own people. So the Jews saw Rome as their oppressors. Rome was the enemies of God. And so these fellow Jews that had sided with, the Rome, with Rome, they were traitors. They were the enemies of the Jewish people. They were the enemies of God. And they were also cheats. Because as they collected taxes, the way that they would get really wealthy is that they would collect more taxes than had been required, and they would keep the extra for themselves. So they, they would look at these people, the, the Jewish people would look at the tax collector, and they'd say, you're on the wrong side, and you're an extortioner. You're taking my money from me so that you can grow wealthy. They were despised people. We could understand, if we were in that place, we would probably despise them as well, not just the same way that we despise doing our taxes in this season, which, public service announcement, if you haven't done your taxes yet, this is probably a good time to do that. But Jesus, he sees this tax collector, and he walks up to him, and instead of doing what you would expect that a rabbi, a Jewish teacher would do, instead of chewing Levi out, instead of rebuking this man, Jesus walks up to him and he says, follow me. He invites this cheating traitor to be his disciple. And it's in this call and the conversations that follow that we see the characteristics of Jesus' call to discipleship, which again is our main idea today, that the call to discipleship is a costly call for sinners to find incomparable joy in Jesus. And we're going to break up our three main points uh, with sections of that. We're going we're to see that the call to discipleship is a costly call. The call to discipleship is for sinners, not the righteous. And the call to discipleship is a call to find incomparable joy in Jesus. Costly call for sinners, not the righteous, and to find incomparable joy in Jesus. So let's look at our first main point, that the call to discipleship is a costly call. And as we're doing that, I want you to look at verse 28, the second verse in this passage. And I want you to make note of what Levi gave up to be a follower of Christ. It says, and leaving everything, everything, he rose and he followed him. And this is a parallel to the verse we saw in Luke 5, verse 11, where Jesus goes to Peter, James, and John. He says, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And he calls them into discipleship, which, Jesus, uh, with, which Josh talked about. And their response is that when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. And here we see Levi doing the same thing as he leaves everything and he follows Jesus. But the call for Levi to leave everything would have been particularly costly. One, because he was a wealthy man. So for this wealthy man to leave everything, he wasn't just a lowly fisher, fisherman. He was a wealthy man. He was leaving behind great wealth to follow Jesus. But he was also leaving behind his livelihood that provided all of that great wealth. You see, when, when Peter, James, and John left Jesus and they left, uh, left fishing to follow Jesus... They were leaving an occupation that they could go back to. 
And we actually see when Jesus dies before his resurrection that some of the apostles do go back to fishing. Fishing was something you could just start up doing again. But being a tax collector was something that you couldn't just start doing again. If you walked away from the Roman Empire, you walked away for good. So he was leaving behind his wealth, wealth, he was leaving behind his source of wealth, and he was leaving it behind for good, with no chance of ever going back. And when we apply this to our lives, it doesn't necessarily mean that all of us must immediately, upon conversion, sell all of our things, sell our car, sell our house, leave our job, and move away. And it can mean that. But what this costly call means for us is that we must consider Jesus as more valuable than anything in our entire lives. Because when we consider Jesus as more valuable than anything, then we are willing to give anything to follow him for his glory, to obey him. And I want to do a really quick test for you. I'm going to list off a series of things in kind of, not exactly, but kind of an increasing amount of worth in your life. And I want you to think, where's the cutoff point where I would say, "Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I would want to give that thing up. Would you give up $10 to follow Jesus? I hope your answer is yes. Would you give up a week of your time to care for someone who's hard to love? How about, would you give up the internet or Netflix for a year? Would you give up your favorite hobby? When I was in college, I I studied fisheries management. Literally, my only qualification for where I would live after college is that I could fish there. Like, I just wanted to live somewhere that had lakes or rivers because the thing I did not want to give up in my life was fishing. So I could move anywhere as long as there was fishing. So that's what I have been willing to give up fishing to follow Jesus. If he called me to the Sahara Desert, like, would I go to the middle of nowhere and give up fishing to follow him? Would you give up your current job? Would you give up your house? Would you give up your dream job? Would you give up your desire to be married? Would you give up your family? Would you give up your life? You see, the call to follow Jesus is a call to give all that we are and all that we have for the cause of his kingdom. And the particular details of what that might look like in each of our lives is different, but the the general idea and the basis of the call and the basic nature of that call remains the same for every single one of us. To be a disciple of Jesus means that we are not our own. We're his. And we often try to soften that call when we call people to Jesus and call people to discipleship. We say, come and your life will be easy. Come because your problems will be fixed. Come because your life will be good. Or even we... Maybe don't go to that extreme, but we say, come to Jesus, but don't worry. It's not like your life has to change. You can just add Jesus on to what you're already doing. That just doesn't work when we consider the costliness of following Jesus. And even though we live in an age right now in the United States where our persecution is minimal compared to other nations and places in the world, I think we all need to seriously consider what it might mean for us to give up our money and our possessions and our comfort and our friendships and our family and even our life to follow Jesus. Because the the history of the Christian church is a history of people who have been willing to give up their lives to follow Jesus. And we shouldn't think that we're any different. The call to us is exactly the same. And I think it can be 
depressing for us to think about this, to think about all that we have to give up, fix our eyes on on what we're giving up. But I think there's a key to this, and the key is remembering who's giving the call. We have to remember that the call to Levi wasn't just from any person. The call to follow Jesus was a call from Jesus himself to Levi. And that means that the one who calls us to leave everything is the one who himself left everything. The one who calls us to discipleship is the one who called us from heaven, to do, who, called, who came from heaven himself to dwell among sinful and messy people in a broken and fallen and sinful world. The one who calls us to lay aside everything is the one who himself laid aside everything, even his life, that he could heal us, that we could be his, that we could be his disciples. And we, I think, can embrace that great cost when we remember that the one who calls us is the one who left everything to purchase us and to call us. So often I think we misunderstand the call to discipleship because we forget that it's costly. But I think there's another barrier for embracing the call of Christ. And that barrier is self-righteousness. And Josh talked about that a little bit leading into our confession of sin. So let's keep going through this passage and see what Jesus has to say about this. Verse 29, we see that Levi, he threw this massive feast and he invited all of his tax collector friends to come be with him and feast with him and to meet Jesus too. And I think this is like a fantastic picture of what evangelism looks like in the Christian life, that this man met this person who called him and saved him. And what does he do? He goes and finds all of his sinner friends and brings them to meet Jesus, to feast with him. I think that's this beautiful picture. But there's this group of people in this paragraph that object to Levi's guest list. They look at it and they say, they go up to the disciples and they say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? What the Pharisees were acknowledging here was something that's actually really important in their culture and something that's important in a lot of cultures in the world, that to have a meal with somebody is a really big deal. That sharing a meal, it conveys unity, it conveys, conveys intimacy. And that's something I think most of us understand. There's something so special about just sitting down for a really good meal with a group of your best friends or with your family and just feasting together. The level of intimacy and love and friendship that is, that is felt around that table is just a really beautiful thing. And I think it's really beautiful when we see that throughout the Gospels, Jesus is constantly eating with people. He's always having these meals with people. And calling even sinners to sit around a table with him. But because there's so much relational weight associated with eating meals, the Pharisees saw Jesus as having a meal with sinners as as him fellowshipping with sinners, as him being okay with what they're doing, of him being even polluted with their sin. That for him to eat with them was to join with them in their sin, to become unclean. So the Pharisees objected to Jesus sharing this meal with these people that they saw as traitors and corrupt, these tax collectors and these sinners. And Jesus gives them an answer, though, in verse 31. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus responds to the Pharisees and their objection that he's eating with sinners by calling himself a physician. He's not there to participate in their sin, He's not there to be made unclean by their sin. He's there to heal their sin. That is his purpose. 
And again, like we, we talked about it already in the service, it's, it's in the news, there's the, the coronavirus scare right now, and it just kind of, I think it reminds us that there's been this reality of plagues and pandemics throughout the history of, of the world. And the Roman Empire itself actually had quite a few significant plagues that threatened their empire and their kingdom. Back in the late 3rd century and the early 4th century, there was a bishop of a church in Caesarea named Eusebius. And he's famous for writing an early history of the church. And Eusebius, in writing about the city that he lived in, he records a plague that hit the city of Caesarea. And while this plague came and was devastating the city, all the citizens of the city fled. They fled to the countryside. They wanted to get away from the city. But he says something really different about the Christians in the city. He says, all day long, some of the Christians tended to the dying and to their burial. Countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them. So in the midst of this highly contagious disease, while everybody ran from the city and the sick, the Christians ran to the sick, even though it risked their lives. And I think it was actions like this in the early church that that contributed in a big way to the spread of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. As people saw this self-sacrificial love of Christians who were willing to give their life to care for the sick and to care for the needy. And so when the Pharisees saw the tax collectors and sinners, they saw them as sick people that you're supposed to avoid. Don't go near them because you might catch what they have. You don't want to be all polluted by those sinful people. But Jesus saw them as a doctor. And he saw himself as one who needed to run to the sick instead of running away from the sick. And this reveals, I think, something really beautiful about Jesus shows us something really beautiful about what discipleship is as we give of ourselves for the good of others. But the Pharisees, uh, it shows something really twisted about them. When Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It seems right away that Jesus is putting the Pharisees in the spot of the healthy and the righteous. So it sounds right away like he's complimenting them. He's saying, Those are the sick people. I'm going to go help them. You don't need it. Like, you're good. You're righteous. You're healthy. But he was actually critiquing them. He was saying that the reason they couldn't understand him and they couldn't accept his message wasn't because they were righteous. It wasn't because they were healthy. It's because they thought they were righteous. Which reveals that the Pharisees had this terrible theology of sin. They claimed to be these people that were experts in the scriptures, but they completely forgot Isaiah 64, which says that our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. They forgot Psalm 53, which says they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not one. The Pharisees were just as sick and just as unrighteous as the tax collectors and sinners, but the problem was that they didn't recognize it. The problem was that they thought they were good because of all of their obedience. Because of all their traditions and all the things they did, they thought that their works were enough to come before God and be like, I am healthy. I'm good. But we have to recognize that the call to become a disciple is only for sinners. It's only for people who are in recognition that they are sick. It's not for the self-righteous. Christianity is not for good people. 
Jesus doesn't feast with good people. There will be no good people in heaven because there are not, there are no good people. There is not one good man or good woman or good child on this whole earth. And I think we need to do a, a real reality check and a really, a really strong heart check here. Because the extent to which you think your righteousness will earn God's love is the extent to which you will be unable to understand the gospel. I want to say that one more time. The extent to which you think your righteousness will earn God's love is the extent to which you will be unable to understand the gospel. And it's also the extent to which you will be unable to be a disciple of Jesus. The biggest thing that disqualifies you from being a disciple is thinking that you're qualified to be a disciple. Discipleship starts with our, us recognizing our deep need of Jesus. And that's why we confess our sin constantly. That's why we repent of our sin constantly. People think it's really comfortable, comfortable to talk about Jesus hanging out with sinners. See, Jesus just like spent his time with sinners. So I can just like, you know, be a sinner and keep sinning. But I don't think anybody really knows what to do with it saying that Jesus calls sinners to repentance. Right? We confess our sin. We turn from our sin. We recognize it. We don't push it away. We don't think that we're good. We know that we're bad, but we turn to Jesus. We seek in his power to obey him. There's one other thing I I think we need to deal with here, and that's our tendency to compare ourselves with other people. That's a problem for the Pharisees. They're like, those other people, they're the bad people. They're the sinners. We're the good people. But I think we do the same thing all the time, especially in the moments when we lack assurance. I want you to think about this. And in the times when you are struggling with, oh no, no, am I really a Christian? Am I really a good person? Our tendency is to just find someone that we don't think is as good as us, compare ourselves to them, and have that be our source of assurance. Because they're worse than me, that means I'm good enough. You know, I'm I'm not them, so I'm all right. And I even remember in, in high school and college, I played competitive sports. And I was one of those people that loved playing teams that weren't as good as us. Some people, like, love the challenge of playing really good teams. I loved, like, just really whooping on a team that had no idea what they were doing. Because you feel like a pro. You're like, I am so good at soccer when I'm playing this really bad team. Like, I am the best soccer player in the world. Because it gives us tons of confidence if we're only ever comparing ourselves with other people. If I was to go and play soccer against Lionel Messi, the best soccer player in the world, I would feel like a kindergartner running around with this weird ball by my feet. I would have no idea what I'm doing. So when we lack assurance, we just find someone that we think is worse than us, and we compare ourselves to them, and then we think, we're, we think that we're good. But the really funny thing here is that the cutoff line for being good and bad is always just that one step worse than us. Right? We become the standard of righteousness. That if you're as good as me, then you're good. If you're better than me, then you're good. But the one person who's one step worse than me, like, they're the bad people. And we put ourselves in the place of being the standard of righteousness. We put ourselves in the place of the law of God. Because we're not the standard of what's holy. God's word and God himself is the standard of what is holy. And if you put yourself up against God's word, if you hold up that mirror and you take a good long look in it, there's no way you're walking away thinking, you know, I'm pretty good. I'm looking pretty good today. No, because the standard of God's word, it reveals all of our sin. It pierces our hearts. It pierces our thoughts and our intentions. And it shows us that we are not good. 
We are not good people. But you want to know the good news in the middle of that? If you're one of the people that look in that mirror and you say, oh man, I'm so dirty, I'm so sinful, oh man, I'm so sick, I'm so lost, then you are in precisely the place to hear the gospel. You are in precisely the posture to hear Jesus call to you. You are the type of person that Jesus came to seek and save. The call to discipleship is for sinners, it's not for the righteous. And lastly, the call to discipleship is a call to find incomparable joy in Jesus. Finding incomparable joy in Jesus. And I want us to view this last point right alongside the first one. Because like I said, if you, if you only think about the cost, and your eyes are just fixed on the things you have to give up to follow Jesus, that can be a really depressing thing. Unless you see that in knowing Jesus, you gain more than you could have ever possibly given away to follow him. When Levi was called to leave everything, what did he do? He threw a party. He invited his friends. And I love what William Hendrickson, a commentator, wrote about this. He says, what's so wonderful about Levi is that in surrendering everything, that surrendering everything made him the happiest man in the world. And I want to compare that with the rich young ruler in Luke 18 that we're going to see when we finally get to Luke 18 in like four years or something. But if you compare that to the rich young ruler, that guy's also wealthy. But what does he do? He doesn't heed Jesus' call. And he walks away with all his stuff, but he walks away sad. The one who gives up everything is the one who walks away happy. The one who left everything is the one who threw the feast. He's the one who enjoyed Jesus. And this idea continues to be reinforced through the end of this chapter, verses 33 through 39. Jesus is asked another question. The disciples of John the Baptist fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And the implied question here is, Jesus, what's going on? Why are you guys just like partying all the time? Why are you guys eating and drinking? Like, isn't it more religious to just go and fast all of the time? And Jesus' answer to them is, is pretty much fast. Like, that's absurd. Why would you fast while the bridegroom is with you? Would you, like, go to a wedding reception, and while the bride and groom are walking in, would everybody just, like, sit there and weep while a dirge is played? Like, it would make no sense. It's like what you're asking doesn't make sense if you know who I am. Once you recognize that, when Jesus says, once you recognize that I'm the bridegroom, then you know that in my presence, there has to be a party. Because if you're with me, then you are with the person that brings you the most joy in the world. If any of you have ever been like uh, groomsmen or bridesmaids or been involved in any part of a wedding, there's just something incredible about being there. There's this incredible joy. I even remember this fall standing next to Andrew during his wedding. And Andrew's someone that just enjoys things deeply. And I got to just enjoy Andrew's enjoyment of Allie during their wedding. It was just, it's beautiful. There is joy during weddings. You don't like, you don't fast, you don't mourn. It's a time of happiness. It's a time of joy. The call to follow Jesus is a call to find in his presence and in knowing him a joy that can't be compared with anything else on this earth. We may be called to give up everything, but it's always worth it to give up all we have to gain something of incomparable and infinite value and to gain something with an infinite capacity to bring us eternal joy. So the call of Jesus to discipleship, it's a costly call. 
It's a call to sinners to repent, but not to the righteous. It's a call to find incomparable joy in him. And as we transition to our time of the Lord's Supper, I just want to make some concluding comments in the final verses of this chapter. Jesus ends all of these interactions. It says he told them a parable. Really, he tells them three parables. And I'm just going to explain these really briefly. Some of them, first one makes a little more sense than the others, especially in our culture. So the first one, the idea is that if I had an old shirt that I had from high school and I got a tear in it, I don't go buy a new shirt from Eddie Bauer, rip off a chunk from that brand new shirt and sew it onto the old, old shirt. Because what do I do? Like the patch doesn't match the old shirt, so I ruin that shirt. And then all of a sudden I just like teared this chunk off this brand new shirt. So in doing so, I ruin both shirts. That makes sense, right? Second one is about wine and wineskins. You have to understand the process of making wine back in that day. They would take these skins, generally goat skins, and they'd sew them up and they'd tan them. And then they'd pour uh, new wine, or wine that was still in the fermenting process, into these wineskins. And as, the, as it would expand, the, the wineskin, because it was fresh, would be able to expand. But over time, as the wine grew old and the wineskin grew old, it would be, grow brittle. So if you took an old, brittle wineskin where the skin was tough and you threw new wine in it that was still in the fermenting process, as it fermented, it would expand. And as it expanded, it would burst the skin. The skin would crack. And the problem here, just like the other one, is that in trying to join these two incompatible things together, you end up losing both. You lost the skin because it burst, and you lost the wine because it all just spilled on the ground. And then the last parable is that uh, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. And he's talking here about someone that's satisfied with an old batch of wine, and he's so satisfied, he, just, he, doesn't, he doesn't feel like he needs to try that new stuff. The, old, the stuff I got already, it's good enough. Like, don't give me that new batch of wine. So what's the point of these parables? What Jesus is saying is that now that he has come, a new era in history has come, and nothing would ever be the same. And his disciples, when they are feasting and they're eating and drinking in his presence, they're living in light of the new age that has come. They recognize now that Jesus is here, we feast. And Jesus says, one day I'm going to be taken away. And in that time, my disciples are going to fast. So he's saying, I'm bringing in a new age. I'm bringing in a new kingdom now that I am here on earth. And the problem was that the Pharisees were trying to pat, would, would be tempted to patch Jesus' new kingdom and his new teaching onto their old traditions. And you can't do that. You can't take the kingdom of Jesus and just patch him onto your life. It doesn't work. You end up ruining the gospel message, and you're no better off for it. Or you could be tempted to think, what I've got is good enough already. I don't need that new stuff. I don't need that new kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. But the big idea here is that we need to live in light of the age in which we live. And now that Jesus has come, he has inaugurated his new kingdom. A kingdom that's going to come to completion the day that he returns. One of my professors talks about the age that we live in as the overlap of the ages. You have the old world, the world that is fallen and sinful. You have the new world that Jesus came to inaugurate when he came and that he comes to consummate when he returns again. And now we live in this weird overlap where we're living in this fallen world, yet we're citizens of this heavenly kingdom. And as we're living in this overlap, it's kind of a weird time for us. How do we live? What do we do? Do we, do we function in this fallen world? Do we, how do we live as citizens of a heavenly and perfect kingdom in the midst of this world? 
But one of the great things is that in the overlap of the ages, the time in which we live, Jesus gave us a feast. You see, as he's inaugurating his new kingdom, there's a feast. There's wedding feasts. There's, there's these people gathering together that he feasts with. There's the, the, his, his feast with his disciples before his death. So he's constantly feasting with people. And we see in Revelation 19 at the end, what happens when Jesus returns? There's another feast. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is what it's called in Revelation 19. But as we live right now, we have a feast. We have the Lord's Supper. What we do when we take the Lord's Supper, hey there, little guy. When we take the Lord's Supper, it's a picture. It's a reminder of the age in which we live. We eat and drink because we know one day that kingdom that Jesus started is going to come in full. And we're going to feast with him then. In that moment, when Jesus comes, when he returns, the cost that we paid in our life to follow Jesus is going to be shown to be completely worth it. And when Jesus comes, when that day comes, Jesus is going to feast with sinners. The very sinners that he called and the very sinners that he healed by his death and his resurrection. And when that day comes, that day that we look forward to, we're going to enjoy for all eternity a joy that can't be compared with any joy of this earth. For eternity, we're going to enjoy Christ. We're going to feast in his presence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news that Christ has come to call sinners. That we don't clean ourselves up to come to Christ. That he comes to us as we're corrupt, as we're cheats, as we're the despised of this earth. And he calls us to himself. Help us to see that Christ is worth more than everything. That giving up anything he may demand of us is worth it when we see that we find incomparable joy in knowing him. Father, as we come and as we take the Lord's Supper, give us eyes that are fixed forward on Jesus. Help us to remember that he is coming back again. And we will feast with him for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.